The following message is from Life Source Christian Church MP3 Audio Lounge. More information about Life Source is available at lifesource.org.au. Yes, I've got a great word on my heart that I believe is in season for you guys. I'm believing that's going to be inspiring, it's going to be encouraging, motivating. I'm prayed up, I'm pumped up, and I'm also full of sugar this morning as well. So I have my Fruit Loops this morning. Anyone like Fruit Loops here? A couple of fans, no. One or two people, a couple of kids that are like under 10, okay. In a league of my own there. I'm still a Fruit Loop fan. We don't have them very often because obviously they send the kids tropo. They go ADD when they have that. So no Fruit Loops for the kids, but special treat just for dad every now and again. And uh, I felt like having some this morning. So uh, things could get a little weird. Things could get a little crazy up in here this morning. So I just apologise right from the outset if there's uh, anything said that just sounds dead set idiotic. I take no responsibility for that whatsoever because I'm under the influence of uh, lots of sugar and Fruit Loops. So I just wanted to get that disclosure out there this morning, get that settled, and uh, now we can move on with the rest of the morning. So you ready for God's Word? Fantastic. Well, if you're taking notes, we've entitled, or I've entitled this sermon, Purposed for Love, because that's our theme for the moment, looking at doing life on purpose. We've had some great messages, and I want to look at, in particular, uh, the purpose for our life being that of love, that we are purposed for love, to receive love and to give love to others. So we're going to be uh, looking at uh, the book of Luke, Luke 10. And uh, chapter 10, verse 25 to 42, we're going to look at two different scenes there. So if you want to open up to that, and while we do that, I will pray. God, we just thank you so much for the opportunity we have to be able to come and to worship you, to lift up your name and honor you, God. We thank you so much for the privilege that we also just get to sit and be still and know that you are God and allow you to lavish your love upon us. It's one thing to be able to love you, but it's another thing to be able to receive the love of our Heavenly Father, God. And we can't live without it. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for the fact that we get to sit under your word, that incredible word, God, that is so life-transforming, God. We thank you that it can divide to the bone, to the marrow, and the spirit, God, all three. And it has that ability, God, to be able to infuse itself within our heart and our soul, the center of our being, God, and transform us from the inside out. And that's what we want more than anything else today, God, that the truth of your word would shape and mold us into to be more like you at the end of the day, God. We want to go out of here loving you more, but with more of a capacity to love others, God, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. Fantastic. Well, I think it's just in about just over a week now, me and uh, my wife, Mandy, we are going to be celebrating our 13-year wedding anniversary, which is going to be fantastic. We're looking forward to that. And I'm just going to go right from the outset. I'm just going to take credit for all of those 13 years. Um, and I'm sure if she was in here, she'd agree with this, but it's been because of my Christ-like nature and character that has made those 13 years successful and uh, to have longevity and stability there. So I just want to sort of prerequisite where we're going today with that, but uh, I was just having a bit of a bit of a ponder on our last 13 years during the week, and in particular, thinking about our proposal date, our proposal day, and I'd put a lot of time and effort into making this the most special day that I could, because I love my wife, and uh, I adore her, and I know that for every woman, this is, uh, apart from the wedding day, it's one of the most special days of their life, you only get one chance to do this, so I thought, I need to do this well, otherwise this marriage could be over before it even starts, so there's a lot hinging on this proposal, and my wife's expectations are pretty high, and so I remember... Uh, having to let her know that uh, 
I was going to be coming up, uh, coming around early to pick her up one particular morning because, as we all know, women need time to be able to get changed and get clothed and, and do their makeup and that. And I was going to pick her up at 4:30 in the morning for where I wanted to take her. So uh, I knew if I wanted this marriage to get off to a good start, I need to give her time to be able to do the things that ladies needed to do. So she sort of knew that the day was coming up. And so anyway, I drove to her place, got there, and I opened up the door. And then she comes walking around the, uh, around the, the bench, around the uh, kitchen, and uh, faces me at the front door, and she's holding this bowl, and she just looks like she's on death's doorstep, the poor thing. And uh, she just sees me, and she nearly starts crying. She just goes, hi, I love you. I'm going to vomit. And what had happened was, obviously, because um, she's, she's a very emotional woman and uh, she was very excited about, obviously, what was going to happen this day, and that excitement, um, obviously, she got no sleep as a result of that. So she's all hyped up, she's all excited, she got one hour, I think it was like 50 minutes, I came at 4.30 to pick her up, and she got to bed at 3.30 in the morning, so she's overtired, she's sick, she's got a bulk, she's ready to vomit, she looks like she's got a bit of a bird's nest happening on the head, you know, as I said, she looks like she's on death doors, head. poor thing, but obviously we're plowing on through, so I grab her by the hand, I take her to the car, we get in the car, we get going, and within about half an hour, she just turns to me, and she gave me that look, and she's just like, oh, I'm about to vomit. And I'm just like, on the inside, I'm just like, heck, no, you're not. In my car, I'm like, no, you're I had my Commodore VL at the time. It was my first car. I'm a mechanic by trade. That's what sort of I did prior to getting into pastoring and whatnot. So I loved my car. It was lowered. It was all done up. I had it totally detailed inside and out. It smelled like lavender on the inside. It was smick. And so on the outside, I'm struggling. There's this tension. I'm trying to show compassion. On the inside, I'm like, no, you are not going to vomit in here. Otherwise, this marriage is over, man. You do not vomit in my car. So I'm sort of struggling between his tension, between being you know, cautious, but at the same time trying to be loving, and eventually she said, no, nah, I'm going to vomit. So I reef over on the side of the M7, pull over, she jumps out, and then she, poor thing, she just starts gagging, and she's got nothing in it because she didn't have any breakfast because she was you know, that nervous and excited at the same time. So she's just gagging, and she's just like, Ugh, Ugh. Uh, and this went on for like about two minutes at like five o'clock in the morning. It sounded like a lady was giving birth on the side of the M7. Like the poor thing, nothing was coming up. And so after about a minute or two of doing this, she gets back in the car and now her throat is all swollen. She can hardly speak. It's sore from all the gagging. She's got sore stomach. She's nearly vomiting. She's tired. She's overtired. She's cranky. She's upset. And so we plow on. We get back in the car, we keep going, and I'm taking her up to Watson's Bay, and we're going to obviously go see the sunrise over the east coast of Sydney, and that was where I was going to propose to her. And we got about five minutes out, clouds come over, start pouring down rain. So I'm thinking, you have got to be kidding me. So I've got this you know, beautiful wife-to-be next to me, crook as a dog, it's pouring down rain, the whole day's looking like a mess, I'm thinking, what am I going to do? And I thought, okay, I'll go to plan B, I had a French picnic sort of planned for her, and uh, thinking I've gone to all these French patisseries and got all this beautiful, beautiful breakfast, cost me a couple of hundred dollars for it, thinking she's going to love this, I was going to do that whilst I proposed up on, uh, up on the, the cliff faces. I thought, we'll do that in the car whilst we wait for the sun you know, to come out and the clouds to clear. So I pull out, at the romantic man that I am, pull out this big uh, um, sort of picnic basket, plop it on next to her, and her eyes start to open up, and I think I'm on to a winner here. And she's like, what have you got there? And I've gone, and I've said to her, babe, I love you, and I've spent months going around from all these different patisseries trying to put together a beautiful French breakfast for you. And she just looks at me. She gave me one of those looks where she was either going to vomit or she was going to start crying. And she just started bawling her eyes out. And she just, and she just starts going, oh, 
Do you even love me? Do you even know me at all? I hate French breakfasts. So she's bawling her eyes out. She hates me. I'm just sitting there pulling my hair out going, you have got to be joking. It can't be this hard. I'm just like, Jesus, take me now. Take me now. I'm just like, seriously, a life of celibacy in some sort of monastery is looking more appealing than being married right now. Because I'm like, it can't be this hard. I'm just like, you have got to be kidding me. And, you know, the morning ended up going on. The sun came out and eventually we ended up praying in that moment and uh, sort of collected ourselves and I went up and I did my thing. We proposed and went for an hour flight over the whole of Sydney. I chartered a personal flight for and did all these other stuff and it was fantastic, you know. But it was an emotional, uh, emotional day for us. But as much as that proposal day, it was a bit of an emotional roller coaster and didn't quite work out, at least the, the front portion of the day, didn't quite work out the way that I'd expected. That didn't detract from the sense and the thrill and satisfaction and purpose that I experienced as I planned and invested all that I could to bless my wife that morning. And I love her to bits. And, you know, it was a real honor and privilege to spend literally months planning step by step this incredible, incredible day. And as I said, although the, the, the start didn't, we didn't get off to the best start, it finished on a real high. And it was an absolutely epic day. And I just remember just feeling in those months leading up to it, there was just something on the inside. It was like, this just feels so right. When I'm not living for myself and I'm living for the needs of others, when I'm living, to bless others, to use what God has given me and blessed me with, to love and make a difference in someone else's world, which is what I was trying to do. There was just something that resonated on the inside of me. And it's just like, yes, this is my purpose. This is what humanity is ultimately called for or called to rather. You know, as a human being, so many of us, we fall into that trap and believe the lie of the enemy that the more that we can focus on ourselves, the more that we focus on me, myself, and I, and live consumed with getting, taking, and accumulating for ourselves, that we will find happiness, that we will find purpose, contentment, and significant in life. And you know, that, that probably is, if we're being honest, that's our de- natural default mode, is selfishness. It's self-centeredness. You know, we aren't born with a bent towards necessarily always living our lives perpetually for other people. If we've got a choice, more times than not, we're going to pick self. And that's our natural default mode without the help of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so many of us believe the lie that we can honestly find true significance and purpose by living life for ourselves. But any of us that have lived long enough, in particular us as Christians, you know, we know because we've witnessed it in others and we've probably witnessed it within ourselves. That true significance and purpose only is discovered and experienced through living a life that is predominantly defined by giving as opposed of getting. Yeah. And it's this dilemma, this tension between our purpose and our significance and living a life that is others focused that I want to wade into this morning. And I want to take a look at two different scenes that are actually connected together. So there are two different scenes, but it's the one story. And it starts in Luke 10, 25. And uh, in the first scene, we have an interaction between Jesus and a lawyer. Then in a few moments, we're going to flip over to the second scene, uh, which is the very next scene, which is then an interaction between Jesus, Martha, Mary, Lazarus, and the 12 disciples at Martha's house. So let's Start off with Luke 10, 25. It says this. Just then, a religious scholar stood up with a question to test Jesus. Teacher, what do I need to get eternal life? Notice that. What do I need to do? Not what you've done through your grace, but what do I need to do? How can I earn eternal life? So right here in this very first verse, 
we see the familiar scene being played out where man or humanity is trying to grapple with this idea of finding and attaining true purpose and significant significance in life. See, here we have a rich, well-educated, successful, well-esteemed businessman, a person who in the eyes of society and culture, both in that day, and it hasn't changed much today either, would be deemed as someone who has found purpose and attain success in their life. If you've got fame, you've got fortune, riches, material possession, then our culture deems you as someone that's you know, successful and found your purpose and uh, your significance in life. And you know, at the end of the day, this guy, he'd made it good. He'd made a good life for himself. And therefore, according to the world's opinion, this should have brought him a sense of happiness, significance, and satisfaction. Yet, in saying all that, yet... Here we see him approaching Jesus, wanting to know how he can earn eternal life or salvation. In other words, this is what the lawyer is saying to Jesus. He's saying, Jesus, I have everything that this world has to offer and says that that should bring me a sense of happiness, significance and satisfaction. But unfortunately, it hasn't. So can you tell me, can you tell me, Master, how can I truly attain it? How can I attain salvation? How can I, how can I get saved? How can I find true purpose and significance for my life? That's the question he's asking. Because nothing else has been able to fill that void in his heart. And it's funny that no matter how hard we try to live in life, you know, whether it's by the ideals, the values, or the cultures of this world, you will always come up short-handed, you will always come up disappointed, and you will come up empty-handed when it comes to finding purpose, significance, and joy. And many of us have walked that road, and we've experienced that firsthand. And if not experienced, we've seen it in others. Because such is the conundrum that we as humanity all find ourselves in at some point on this search for purpose and significance. And in particular, as Christians, trying to strike that balance and, and manage that tension of wanting to live a purposeful life and a significant life, but you know, having to try and do that whilst loving others all the time. Because as we're about to see, that's the command that God gives us. That's what he said is one of the main purposes for our life. See, so many wrestle and grapple with this whole tension their whole life, and they still come up short. They could live their whole life, 70, 80, 90 years, and yet on their deathbed, they live with so much sorrow and regret because out of all things, the thing that they missed was purpose and significance in life. And I don't know about you, but I want to be able to, when I pass away from this life, be able to face and look at Jesus face to face and hear those infamous words of, well done, good and faithful servant, because I lived a life of purpose and significance. The life of purpose and significance that God has called me to live, which is all about loving God and loving people. I want to hear those words resonate in heaven. And I'm sure each and every one of us do as well. And so we're about to hear Jesus in a second. He actually answers this guy and he tells him how he can earn salvation or earn um, and become saved. And this here, he highlights our purpose or one of the main purposes for our life. And we read on and it says, Jesus, he answered... To the lawyer, what's written in God's law? Poses a question to him. How do you interpret it? The lawyer says, well, the law says that you love the Lord your God with all your passion, prayer, muscle, and intelligence, and that you love your neighbor as well as you do yourself. And Jesus says, right answer. Well done. Go and do it. Go and do likewise. And I love this next verse here. It is, this is good. It says, verse 29. It says, looking For a loophole, lawyer, sounds like a lawyer to me there. So the lawyer, trying to look for a loophole, trying to look for a loophole, it says, 
He asks the question and poses it to Jesus, and just how would you define neighbour? How do you define neighbour? Trying to get Jesus stuck for an answer by getting him lost in the details and the complexities of relationship. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to stump Jesus in that the hope that he might stump him, that he won't be able to come up with a clear answer and that he would be able to live out in his loophole and not love everyone. Just maybe those that are easy to love because easy people, easy to love. There's people in our life that are just tough to love. And he's obviously had some pretty bad experiences. And so he's trying to look for a loophole. He's like, surely where it says, you know, to love your neighbor as yourself, surely that doesn't mean everyone. Just those that have done right by me, that are friends to me and given me what I want. But as we're about to find out, that's not the case. See, I find this this verse right here both amusing and sad at the same time. It's a bit of an oxymoron in a sense because here we have the lawyer asking the question. The first question he posed was, how do I attain purpose and significance in my life? You then have Jesus actually then highlights the question, or sorry, highlights the answer to him. And he basically says and refers him back to the Ten Commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love other people. So Jesus is just giving him the answer to his first question. Yet, you find the lawyer is now trying to find a loophole out of the very lifestyle that God has called him to that's going to actually give him that sense of purpose and meaning. So you can see like it's a bit of a conundrum here. There's a bit of, a, bit of an oxymoron going here. He's given the answer. This is how you're going to have purpose and significance. Just love God and love others. But yet he's now trying to find a loophole out of it. So he's trying to weasel his way out. Whether he knows this or not, I don't know. But he's weaseling his way out of the very answer and the blessing that God is trying to give him right here. So you then have Jesus. Sorry, I just said that. Highlights. And this is where we really see this tension between finding our true purpose and living out this command of loving our neighbor. We see that really just come to the surface in this particular part of the story. And I think a lot of the time, a lot of the time we're really quick to judge the lawyer. I'm quick to look down on him because he's trying to get out essentially of what God has asked him to do. And so we look down on him, we judge him. But if we're being honest with ourselves, I think so often we are this lawyer. At certain times in our life, if we're being honest with ourselves, we can find ourselves in the same instance that this lawyer is in. We're aware, just like him, because he was a religious scholar, so he knew the Ten Commandments, he knew the Torah. Just like him, we know as well, because we've read our Bible, you know, we're in church week in, week out. We know what God's commands are. We know that his command is not just in the Ten Commandments, but smattered the whole way through the New Testament. There is verse after verse after verse that tells us that we need to love one another, love one another, to live for the need of others to put other people first and so he knew and at times you know all the time as a matter of fact we know what we should be doing but yet we're caught in this tension of being able to love the unlovable we know what we should do but when it comes to the crunch just like him we probably tend to find ourselves trying to find a bit of a loophole out of not loving some people that God has actually called us to love and you know what personally I don't think that the lawyer is necessarily a really bad guy I just think that deep down, he knew what Jesus was asking him. It was hard. He knew what the law was requiring of him. It was hard. It was to love people, everyone, because that's your neighbor. Your neighbor is everyone, as we're about to find out in a few minutes, and love all the time, because the law demanded perfection. It demanded us to go to the nth degree. So when it says love your neighbor, it means everyone, and it means all the time, unceasingly. So he knew that this is a tall ask, virtually impossible. And see, the lawyer... He's probably had some painful experiences in the past. He's been hurt one too many times. He knows a whole lot of irritating people in his life and just doesn't really feel that he can go there 
with this whole unconditional love thing with certain people in his life. And I think that's why, at the end of the day, he's trying to find a bit of a loophole. And I think we can all sort of resonate with him to some degree with certain people in our life. You know, just uh, this last week, there was a couple of people that... fairly close friends to me and Mandy. They're not in this church. They're from a previous church that we've been a part of. And just through the grapevine, long story short, we got whiff of a few things that they said about us that wasn't really nice. And, you know, I just remember hearing this. I just remember just feeling violated on the inside. And I mean, I really got upset. I got angry with these guys because these guys have known us for a very long time. They were supposedly supposed to be fairly close friends. And, you know, it was fairly awful what they said. And I was just really, really angry. The type of person I just wanted to throttle and just headbutt. If I'm being honest, I just wanted to grab them and I just wanted to headbutt. Now you've got to understand, I know you guys do things a little bit more diplomatically up here on the North Shore, (laughs) but I'm from Great West of Sydney. I was born and raised in Campbelltown. That's a different culture to up here. We do things a little bit different to you guys down there. Down there, you've got a problem with someone, you do one of two things. You grab them, you headbutt them, or you slash their ties. You do one of those two things. (laughs) I felt Violet was probably the best word, and I felt really deeply wounded and hurt by these people. And since then, we've been able to talk about that, and we've been able to clean, clear things up. But, you know, for a week or so there, I was carrying a deep wound and a deep hurt. And at the end of the day, relationships are messy. You know, there's so much good about relationships, but then there's a lot of pain and a lot of heartache that's attached to relationships. Well, just as Mandy so beautifully articulated it last week, that some of your best moments in life that you can remember, people are involved in that. At the same time, on the flip side of that, some of the worst moments that you've had, the greatest pain that you've carried has been caused by people. By people. They're messy. And no doubt, this lawyer had been hurt and had been let down by people, hence trying to find that loophole. But you know what? At the end of the day, no matter how much we try and slice and dice it, there's no way for us to be able to justify and rationalize our way out of God's commandment, which is clear, and that's to love one another, Amen. to love your neighbor, to love them unconditionally, and to love them all the time. It is so, so clear to live a continual lifestyle of love, not just moments, not just certain selected people when they're doing what you want them to do or they're blessing you or you can get something back, but all people all the time. And that's my first point that I want you guys to write down. It's only one of two points this morning, and this is it. It should be up on the board. We are designed and purposed by God to live a continual lifestyle of loving and living for others. No question about it. It's plain and clear. See, living for and loving others is such a crucial part of the purpose for our life that Jesus not only referred to it once in this story with the Good Samaritan, He highlighted it, first of all, to the lawyer by referring him back to the two commandments. So he highlights it there. This is the life that I want you to live. But it's such a crucial point for our lives that Jesus goes in for a second bat. He's gone in for a second innings here. And he's like, you know, I just really want to ram this point home. So now he decides to actually share a story. And the story is about the Good Samaritan to highlight this point again, that we need to be a neighbor to everyone. We need to love people. That's the purpose for our life. And this is where... We pick it up. And this is just such a, you know, a socially, culturally, and religiously charged story. I love it. And it's so powerful on so many different levels. But this is where we pick it up. Verse 30. It says, There was once a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. On the way, he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes, beat him up, and went off, leaving him half dead. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road. But when he saw the man, obviously the beaten up guy, he angled across to the other side. Then a Levite, another high-profile religious man, showed up, and he also avoided the injured man. A Samaritan, traveling down the road, came along. When he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. He gave first aid, disinfecting his bandages and wounds. Then he lifted him up on his donkey, led him to an inn, and made him comfortable. 
In the morning, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take good care of him. If it costs any more, put it on my bill. I'll pay you on my way back. And then I love this part here. Next verse. Here it comes. And this is where Jesus really just drops a hammer. You know, really just gets up in this guy's grill, gets up in his business, and uh, really just sort of plays with his theology a little bit here. And this is, this is what he says. He says, watch what Jesus does here. He says, Jesus asked, after telling this story, this is the question that he poses to the lawyer, what do you think? Which of these three became a neighbor to the man attacked by robbers? Then the lawyer answers, well, obviously the one who treated him kindly. In other words, loved him. The religious scholar responded, and Jesus said, so go and do the same. Go and do likewise. Notice what Jesus did there. He actually changed the question that the lawyer originally asked. And he changed it from, who is my neighbor? That was the question that the, uh, the lawyer asked in the hope that you know, he'd be able to stump Jesus. He wouldn't be able to give an answer. And then he would be able to go off and pick and choose who his neighbor is and who he's going to actually love. But he changes the question and then asks it. He asks this question. It's not about who is my neighbor, but who was being a neighbor in this story. And he did this in order to really make it clear to the lawyer that it's not about trying to work out who your neighbor is, not about trying to find a loophole. It's not about trying to get out of loving people so you can fulfill your own agenda in life. It's not about that. But he makes it clear that it's about being a neighbor, not trying to work out who your neighbor is so you can possibly get out of it, but it's about being a neighbor to everyone. That's what Jesus is basically saying to him. Hey, I want you to love everyone. You are a neighbor to anyone that is around you. So in essence, again, Christ is just highlighting here, just as the Lord does, that I want you to live a lifestyle, a continual lifestyle of loving other people all the time without ceasing. Because that's what Jesus expected. That's what the law demanded. So as a result of that, we're left here. This is the crazy thing. We're left here now with this scene, which just ends so abruptly. It just ends with Jesus basically saying, just go and do likewise. And it's almost like we as the audience are left almost contemplating and thinking that the lawyer was able to go away and do this. It's just sort of like Jesus like, here's the first law. Go and love Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Second, you know, just love people as yourself. So just go out and do it. As if it's as simple and as easy as that. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. I'm like, I find it hard enough to love people that just occasionally tick me off, let alone to love people that constantly hate me, use me, abuse me, and the list could go on and on and on. What are the chances of this guy being able to actually able to do this? Jesus knew. He was just a bit of tongue-in-cheek. He knew this guy wasn't going to be able to do it because he was just playing along with the lawyer because the original first question that the lawyer posed was, how do I earn salvation? So Jesus is like, you can't, but I'll go along with this anyway and I'll just prove to this guy and through the scripture that you're not going to be able to fulfill the law. You're not going to be able to fulfill the purpose for which I've called you for, which is loving people all the time, unless you have something. And that's where we're about to go and finish this morning because... At the end of the day, this could be a little bit awkward for us as the readers sort of reading here because we're left in a bit of a predicament. We're left with a bit of a conundrum here. It's sort of like, okay, well, Jesus, you know, through these two examples, you've basically shown the lawyer and you've shown us this is who you've called us to be. Then you just leave it there. And it's like, well, how are we actually supposed to do that? Because in one breath, you've said we need to live a continual life of loving everyone, our neighbor, which is everyone, be a neighbor to everyone, love everyone all the time. Yet in the same breath, you're saying that it's impossible to be able to do this in our own strength. So there's this tension and this question that's left here. And this is where Jesus answers it in the very next scene. So here we find ourselves jumping into, is it Luke? Uh, where are we here? 
We're jumping in now from the scene with the lawyer into the living room, going from lawyer to living room. And this is uh, now a scene, the scenario. Let me set it up. We're in Martha's house. Jesus' and his disciples are here. Mary's here. Lazarus is here. These guys are coming in for a bit of tea and scones, a bit of a chin wag. And uh, this is where we pick it up here. So this is 38. And this is where Jesus now answers by shifting into this next scene because it can seem like a totally different scene, but it's actually not. Luke actually intended for them to go together. They're actually interlocked. What one does, the first scene, presents a predicament. Jesus then answers it in this next scene. And this is it. He says, verse 38, As they continued their travel, Jesus entered a village. A woman by the name of Martha welcomed him and made him feel quite at home. She had a sister, Mary, who sat before the master, hanging on every word that he said. But Martha was pulled away by all she had to do in the kitchen. Now, notice right there how you got Martha, the older sibling, in the kitchen, hard at work, doing something, being productive, probably whooping up some hummus and some pita bread for all the guys that are there, you know, doing her job. And she's doing a great job. And she's fulfilling what would seem like a good Samaritan, the very thing in the story or the scene before that Jesus was telling us that we need to be. We need to be like the good Samaritan. We need to love people. Alluded to the uh, the Ten Commandments about that. That is our purpose. So she seems like she's actually fulfilling the very thing that that Jesus has commanded us to do in the previous scene. Note that. Meanwhile, you have Mary, the younger sister, who's sitting in front of Jesus, and she's just like, oh my gosh, I love you so much, Jesus. Oh, I love your eyelashes and your dimples and your soft wavy hair and just getting lost in your ocean of your eyes. And Mary just seems like she's doing a fat load of nothing just sitting there in front of Jesus. So you've got this, this tension going on here now between two sisters. One's just sitting there doing like, you know, acting like she's a doll bludger, not doing anything, in, you know, uh, for anyone. And then you've got uh, Martha over here who's actually looking like she's being the good Samaritan and loving people, waiting on their needs, placing value and worth by hosting them in her house. And as you can imagine, this just ticks Martha off to no end. And I like, to, I like to inject myself into the story sometimes and imagine, you know, the kind of facial expressions and the emotions that are going on. And so I can imagine, you know, Martha standing there and she just, she's got her sass on and she's just got her attitude because she's now just approached Jesus and asked him to basically tell her sister off for not doing anything. You can imagine she's just standing there and she's, you know, just got her you know, hips out and she's got her head going like this and she's getting her, you know, Afro-American on and she's just like... Uh, Aunt girlfriend, you didn't. Oh, you didn't. And she's getting all sassy and she's getting all worked up because, you know, she's got her sister who is not being the good Samaritan. If anything, she's being the lazy good for nothing Samaritan at the moment. So she's ticked off and she's ticked off a bit with Jesus as well because he's not, you know, immobilizing and encouraging her to actually step up and be the good Samaritan, the very thing that he's just finished telling us that we need to be in the scene before. And then listen to what Jesus says to this. Verse 40. He says, later, or the, the scripture says, later, she, Martha, stepped in, interrupting the master and said, don't you care that my sister has abandoned me to the kitchen? Tell her to lend me a hand. So you've got Martha, who's just like, she's getting all worked up. She's just like, Jesus, this is ridiculous. Why aren't you, you know, why, don't you not care? Can't you see what's going on? The injustice that's here. Like, can you do something about this? Tell my doll bludging sister to get up and to serve and to be a good Samaritan, please. So that's Martha's, you know, that's a conversation that's going between her and Jesus at the moment. So then Jesus says to her, this is how he's reply. This is what Jesus says back to her. He says, Martha, 
You're fussing far too much, and you're getting yourself worked up over nothing. He's just like, girl, you are a hot mess right now. Calm your farm and just relax. Just relax, girl. He says one thing, one thing only is essential, and Mary has chosen it. It's the main course, and it will not be taken from her. And we're just thinking in terms of Martha's perspective, what a slap in the face to her to have that reply by Jesus. But she's missing the mark here. See, this interaction can seem a little confusing. Because as I said in the scene before, we're getting told by Jesus, love people, serve people, meet their needs, be the Good Samaritan. Then we flick across to this second scene, and now Martha looks as if she's been the Good Samaritan, only to have Jesus rebuke her and praise Mary for what looks like she's being the lazy, good-for-nothing Samaritan. So it's like, come on, Jesus, what is this? You know, what is going on here? Now, do you want to know the answer? I'll bring it to a close right now. Bring the plane in. You want to know the answer? Yes, that's good. That's cool. I was going to go give you the answer anyway. It was a rhetorical question, but it's always good when your audience actually wants to come with you. It's a little less awkward for me. So that's good. So here's the answer. It says, Jesus isn't contradicting himself there, although it seems like it in the moment. Because at the end of the day, Jesus never does that. He never contradicts himself. The word of God never contradicts itself either. It is always God is a God of clarity. He's a God of order. He's not a God of confusion and chaos. So there's no contradiction here. What he's saying is this. Martha, your actions are right, but what you don't understand is that without what Mary's doing, you won't be able to sustain what you're doing. We have been called to a lifestyle of a good Samaritan, being a neighbor to everyone, living a continual life. That's the charge that Jesus has put out to us. That's impossible by ourselves. And here Jesus reveals the answer, that it's not either or, Mary, but it's both and working together. This is what you're called to, but you cannot do what you're doing and sustain that long term, day in, day out, in particular to your enemies, the very people that hate you and you're not going to get anything back. How are you supposed to ever love them and have the ability to love them if you don't understand what Mary is doing right now? Because it's not as if Mary never did anything. She did. You just go and read the scriptures. She's incredibly active, a great Samaritan. But she just knew and understood this principle of what it meant to sit at the Father's feet and allow him to lavish his love upon her because that's what was happening in that moment. Because it's the love of the Father, that indescribable, irrational, illogical, immeasurable love that God has for each and every one of us. You know, that, that love that we can't comprehend or get our heads around. It's that love that becomes our motivation and our empowerment to live out the command of continuously loving our neighbor day in day, even those that treat us wrong, those that spit in our face. There is an ability for you and I to be able to love them, to still place value and worth upon their life, even though we're not getting anything back and they are treating us like dust. And it comes from sitting at the foot of Jesus and allowing yourself to be loved by him. It's that love that becomes the motivation and the empowerment to be able to live out and be the good Samaritan. Can you see how those two are linked in, those two stories, how they work hand in hand? One raises the predicament, and then Jesus comes in and says, this is the answer. Last scripture I'll give you is John 13, 34. And this again just highlights so beautifully what I'm saying this morning. It says this, a new command, this is Jesus speaking to the disciples, a new command I give to you. Here it is again. You want a New Testament scripture to back up the one in the Old Testament in terms of how we're supposed to live out the law and live a lifestyle of loving people continually? Here it is in the New Testament. Love one another. He doesn't just say it once. He says it three times. 
you need to really listen to something when Jesus repeats himself three times in the space of two sentences. There's something that's important that Jesus wants to say. And he's re-emphasizing we are to live a lifestyle and we are purposed to give love out to a hurting, broken world. He says, love one another. And here's the key to it all. And this is the point that I just made. As I have loved you. Love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The key to being able to love one another all the time and live a continuous life like that, not about yourself, but about blessing others, comes when you sit at the feet of Jesus and you love as Jesus has loved you. Do you see the importance of that part portion of that scripture there? We cannot live this life, this purpose life, if we are not empowered by God's love himself. We can only love because he first loved us. You cannot give what you don't have. You cannot give what you don't have. And some people are going to be incredibly demanding of your love. And so you need to make sure that you've got Christ's love in you. So you need to be intentional each and every day, church. Each and every day. Thanks for listening to this message from Life Source Christian Church MP3 Audio Lounge. We invite you to visit us online at lifesource.org.au to find out more about our church and to also access other free resources.